Well, it is good to be with you again this morning. We thank God for travelling mercies. Uh, it was a bit of a difficult journey. But praise God we're here and uh, let's just ask God's blessing on our time around the word. Almighty God, we praise and thank thee for this, your living word. We praise and thank thee at its centre is our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that through our studies this morning, you might reveal him in your word to each one gathered here, that we may find faith, we might find refreshment, we might find instruction, Lord. This is your word, and we pray now that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you will bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know, it's probably a function of growing old, but... Um, We've found over the last 18 months that it seems month after month we attend yet another funeral. Uh, I think over the course of the last 12, 15 months, we've been to 12 or 15 funerals. Um, some obviously godly Christian people and it's always a joy to give thanks and uh, praise God that he's taken another one to be with himself in glory. Some, unfortunately, are unbelievers and uh, we've had to uh, uh, console, perhaps, one another. Uh, they may have heard the truth for years and years and yet it's not been the Lord's will to draw them to himself. And then, again, as the years pass, so relatives pass away. Uh, one of the last of Jenny's cousins died uh, just a few months ago. It was the last of a few cousins, none of whom, sadly, uh, were born again. And so we just realise, and we're brought to realise, aren't we, as the years pass, the inevitability of leaving this life and going to the next life. And so it's important, isn't it, for each one of us as rational, thinking, intelligent beings, constantly, I think, to review our concept of life and our approach to the end of that life. That life is but a few short years here. Uh, the life of a man is three score years and ten, as we're told. And if by reason of strength, it's four score. And so we just come again this morning and we have to consider from the word what is our situation concerning life and death. Some people believe that uh, the end of this life is total annihilation. Jenny's dad used to say, when you're dead, you're done for. And that was his opinion. Of course, it's the same before we're born, that we don't know anything about existence, but we are created by God. We are brought into this world. We are given this wonderful opportunity to know and to love and to have a relationship with our Creator God. And what we find as we consider the Scriptures, we find that the Bible reveals three types or three categories of beings. And firstly, there are those categories of beings that have a beginning and an end. These are the animals and the other creatures that God creates and they're born and they live and then they die. And because they have no souls, no 
intelligence about them, then that is the end of their existence. To dust they return. And then there are those that have a beginning but no end. And of course this is men and women. We are born with a never dying soul. Yes, our bodies grow old, our bodies will fade and die and our bodies will be laid in the grave. But he has created us as ever-living spirits along with the angels that he created. And then thirdly, of course, there are those beings, those godly, heavenly beings, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, without beginning, without end, everlasting, the one eternal Godhead. So in many ways this lays the foundation of what we're going to consider this morning. And so we need to look at this picture of life and death that we read here in John chapter 5. We're told Jesus was here at the Feast of the Jews. The Bible narrative takes us straight to this pool of Bethesda. And what we see here, don't we, a, a tragic picture. A tragic picture, a picture, as the Bible says, a multitude. Not just five or six, a half a dozen, two dozen or whatever, but a multitude. And of course, in the record of Jesus' life, the word multitude and the concept of multitude figures greatly. And we have to understand that these are vast numbers of people. What we see here is a multitude of the blind, the paralysed, the lame, the deaf, those suffering from various diseases. Why were they there? We have to ask. Why were they there? Uh, why didn't they go to the doctor? Why didn't they go to the emergency department? Well, there were none, weren't there? There was no NHS, no private clinics, even as wealthy as you might be. For many diseases, there was no hope, no cure. And so these people, the only hope for them was the superstition that the angel might move in the waters and that they may be able to be the first ones in to receive the healing that was supposed to come from the moving of the angel. And so what we note here is this day, this Sabbath day, this in this position around this pool. This was going to be a day like no other day around that pool. You see, no one was aware that moving amongst this multitude of sick and dying, of lame, of blind people, moving amongst them was the Son of God. He was among them, walking among them, as the presence of the eternal God in their midst. What a privilege, although they didn't know it. The almighty saviour, the son of God, was there in all his divine human nature. Jesus Christ was seen and felt and heard amongst the wretched, the helpless and the hopeless mass of eternity. And of course, through the work of his Holy Spirit, he's still there. He's still here, moving amongst the weak and the helpless and the hopeless in this world of ours. You see, as I've said, there are recorded incidents in the scripture where Jesus had compassion on the multitudes. 
we read, don't we, the, re the, he the feeding of the 5,000. We read of the feeding of the 4,000. And the teaching on the hillside of the multitudes of people. And yet in this particular narrative, we find that Jesus seeks out, amongst the multitude, he seeks out but one man. This particular man. And he's going to work in that one particular man, this amazing work of healing. You see, in many ways, in microcosm, this is a picture, isn't it, of God's dealings with fallen man. As millions and millions and billions of men and women have passed through this life, generation after generation, God has been pleased to draw to himself that vast multitude on which he has set his love. But it's not every man, isn't it? Out of the millions and billions, he has a number, a number that can't be numbered, but still not everyone. And here is a picture of it. As he moves amongst this multitude around the pool, he moves to one individual. And it teaches us of his love, and it teaches of his mercy, but it teaches us also of his justice, and it teaches us also of his righteous anger. You see, in spite of the efforts of Satan and his toast, and the efforts of rebellious man himself, there is a multitude here that God has redeemed through the work of his Saviour, through the work of his Son, to redeem to himself. And he is, over the generations, calling out individuals, one by one. Of course, we, receive, we read of that great work at Pentecost, when 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom in that one day. And through the generations, there have been revivals, when there have been large numbers. But even amongst the large numbers, each one, as an individual, has to receive an experience of the work of the Saviour in themselves. And so, here is the situation with this man, a man who has no hope. Jesus seeks out this man who has indeed been in this hopeless state for 38 years. And like the lame man at the gate beautiful, he has no friends to bring him there every day. It appears that this man had no one to help. Again, we remember the man, the paralytic man, who was let down through the roof by his four friends. But again, in contrast, this man has no one to help him. And we see here, don't we, a clear illustration of the fact that Jesus is the friend and the help of the helpless and the hopeless. Jesus, of course, knew all about this man. Indeed, Jesus knows all about every man. But in this case, he knew specifically about this man that he sought out. And we read, didn't we, that he asked what seems a strange and in many ways a silly question. This man... Jesus knew he had been suffering from this malady, whatever it was, for 38 years. And Jesus asked him, 
Do you want to be healed? Well, of course. Of course this man wants to be healed. Sometimes it reminds us, doesn't it, of these seemingly silly questions that TV reporters ask people who've perhaps been through a tra trauma. Uh, how do you feel about this? Well, of course, I feel terrible. It seems pointless asking the question. Seems at times unkind, doesn't it? to bring up the subject and revive memories again. And so Jesus asked this question. Do you want, do you want to be made well? But this was no stupid, silly question, was it? The Saviour asked because he wants to know that this man knew his great need. He wants to know that this man understands that he needs real healing. He asks because he wants this man to acknowledge his helplessness, to acknowledge his need, and to acknowledge his hopelessness. He is dependent on only one person. There is only one person that can heal him, and he is dependent on the work of Almighty God. And so this man acknowledges, doesn't he, he acknowledges his sorry state. He acknowledges he has no ability and no one to help. And so according to his understanding of the situation, how can he be made well? Well, we have, don't we, in this situation, and if we apply it to ourselves, we have a picture of the helpless nature of the human heart the hopeless nature of the human heart. We have a picture of the fact that as human beings born in sin and shapen in iniquity, we have no hope in this world apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no ability ourselves to respond to the demands of God. And indeed, even no human aid can help us to overcome of this great difficulty in being healed, in being made right with God, in having the guilt and the punishment of our sin taken away. You see, the Saviour puts it so gently and so tenderly in many ways, doesn't he? Here is the solution. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And perhaps we should just pause here for a moment and think of this situation presented to us here in the scriptures. We've mentioned there were multitudes there at this pool. And what of those around? What about the man next to this man that Jesus has come to? Was the person next door blind? Was the person next door again lame or was he sick? with the palsy? Was he deaf? Did he have some other terrible disease? And what about these people? Did they not hear the words of Jesus? Did they not hear the Saviour talk to this man? Did they also not have opportunity to respond? And here again, it's the application of the work of the gospel. Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world. The gospel is to be available for all to hear. 
God's message of hope is to be made to all men. And it is one of the ways in this world that God reveals himself to men. See, God speaks to men through his word. He speaks to men through his creation. He speaks to men through the preaching of the gospel. How shall they believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Yet the sad fact is, isn't it, and this is revealed over and over again in scripture, men do not hear, or perhaps more precisely, men will not hear, they prefer to trust in the false gospel of their own efforts, in the false gospel of works that's indeed proffered by many who would preach an error-stricken gospel. We see that the hearts and minds of that multitude gathered round that pool 2,000 odd years ago were focused on the false hope, weren't they, of the moving of the water. A hope that was focused on their own efforts to get them into the water that they might receive the benefits of what they supposed to be was a supernatural power in the water itself. The situation is no different at all today, is it? Men are deluded by Satan who has deceived and blinded the hearts and minds of men to put their hope in the false hope of their own efforts and in the many false religions that abound in the world today. Yet for this one man, for this one man amongst that vast multitude, deliverance had come that day. And it had come in the person and in the presence of the Saviour himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He received and understood the command, rise up, take up your bed and walk. And the record of the scripture is that he rose immediately and immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. It's amazing. Such is the power. Uh, such is the efficacy of the call of God. Christ has life-changing power. In this man, it was physical, but also for many today, for many over the generations, this life-giving power is spiritual. This man's life was certainly never ever going to be the same again, was it? He had only known the life that he had lived, this restricted life. But now it was apparent to all around what had happened in this man's life. Of course, this was a much favoured man who was blissfully unaware of who it was who had healed him and restored him to full health and strength. However, the scriptures do tell us that he went and did what was right, didn't it? He goes to the temple and he gives thanks. Indeed, how blessed was this man. How he must now give thanks that his miserable life had been changed to one of hope, to one of anticipation, to one of opportunity, and he began to look forward now to the things that he would do with his restored abilities. 
As we look at this, we could draw number upon number of parallels from this passage. Yet we must consider whether there are any among us this morning, perhaps, who understand their helpless and hopeless case, their helpless and hopeless case in the state of physical and spiritual life. If you do, then you may hear the Saviour saying, do you want to be made whole? Now this may not be today in a physical sense. It may be that deliverance is close by, but deliverance comes in a spiritual way, in the way in which a soul can be healed, in the way in which a soul can be restored to a right relationship with Almighty God. You see, there were those multitudes around who heard, but didn't respond. But those who hear, and those who understand, are those to whom the Saviour has revealed their need, and has shown them their hope is not in the world around, or their own efforts, but only in him. His call is what we call an effectual call. His call cannot be resisted. His call will triumph. Even over our stubbornness, even over our rebellion, he will call himself, call us to himself, and we will understand when the Saviour calls. His call awakens us to our need. But there is more to learn from these verses. We read towards the end of that passage that this healing stirred up the hatred and the resentment of those Jewish leaders. At one point he calls them whited sepulchres, white on the outside and dead in the middle, in their hearts, dead, full of resentment to the truth and to the glory of Almighty God. You see, they had never experienced miracles like this, and to add insult to injury, the work of healing had been done on the Sabbath day. It was their mind, in their mind, that this was a direct challenge to their teaching, to the rabbinical law and the rabbinical teaching. They had taken the wonderful laws of Moses and altered and added and changed them to meet their own selfish ends. Jesus now goes on, doesn't he? He proceeds to set forth, in the clearest terms, the power by which this miracle has been accomplished. And not only the power, uh, but the person by whom this miracle has been performed. And what we see is that in the process of this teaching, he sets forth a wonderful and incontrovertible truth he who hears my word and believes in me and him who has sent me has everlasting life. And he shall not enter into judgment, but he has passed into eternal life. He has passed from death to life. This is one of the texts, isn't it, that comforts the hearts of believers who love and believe in the Saviour. And in the context of this scriptural passage, we see that Christ has first provided 
the practical illustration now continues to provide the doctrinal teaching. We said earlier, didn't we, that this man heard the Lord's words, rise up and take your bed and walk. He got up, didn't he? And he picked up his bed and walked. And probably at that point, he didn't realise, or he didn't understand, why he believed. Or even why he was so obedient. Except perhaps from the authority in the voice of the one who spoke. It is by the grace of Jesus Christ, Paul tells the Ephesians, it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The work of salvation is all of God. There is nothing that we contribute to the work of salvation. Now this in many ways challenges our human needs to be in control. We love to be in control. We love to have control over our situation. But when we've been brought, as this man was brought to recognise his need, when this man was brought to recognise his hopeless state, the case that without Almighty God he was lost, so is our case with Christ. So is our case with salvation. So is our case with eternal life. Without Jesus Christ we are hopeless and helpless and lost for eternity. But you see, when the Lord comes, we hear his voice. When the Lord comes, we are led by the gift of faith to believe. When the Lord comes, we enter in to the knowledge of eternal life. We understand and give thanks that we shall not enter into judgment. We understand again, as the Saviour says, we have passed from death into life. When we lay down our mortal flesh at the end of our lives, when we want those we leave behind to celebrate only the years of our mortal life, those years of earthly toil, of earthly achievement, surely not, surely not for Christians. We want them to praise God the Father that we've been taken and through the work of our Saviour, through the redeeming work of our Saviour, we've been taken into the eternal joy of the presence of God. And so the challenge to us as Christians today is found in the later encounter of Christ with this man. He finds him in the temple and he instructs him to reflect on his healing. He instructs him to avoid sin, lest something worse should come upon us. Now the scriptures don't tell us whether Jesus and this man ever met again. But you see, here is the gospel call. Here is the gospel call. That man went, was there that morning. What were his thoughts for that day? Perhaps I can just survive. Yet another day. Perhaps someone will give me food. Perhaps someone will even have a kind word for me just to endure my state. Little could he have realised that day 
that that day would enter into an amazing delivery. His life was changed forever. And friends, as much as this is an illustration of Christ's healing power over the physical weaknesses of the body, so it paints for us a wonderful picture of Christ's healing power of our souls. And the reward is not just the ability to move around physically, but the reward is to enter in to the great hope of eternal life. And so, friend, can I, if you're not yet in the kingdom of Christ, if Jesus Christ is not yet your saviour, can I exhort you to seek the saviour, to be in that position, to hear his word. May his spirit come upon you, and may indeed you leave this place and enter this day rejoicing in a life that's been changed by the healing, saving power of Almighty God. Amen. May God bless his word to us this morning.